And so I think over time, just interests have drifted and shifted. And um, I think one of the most important things that was part of my early phase was trying to really understand cult dynamics, what people were calling cult dynamics or um, undue influence. And so trying to examine my own journey through that lens was an important dimension of, of my journey. But that gave me a sensitivity to when I see um, dogmatic ideology driving a particular issue. And so I think I started to see those sort of features show up in other more non-religious culturally aspect culturally relevant aspects of our modern discourse and so i started to look into that a little bit more and i found there were some important and significant things to say um, about you know subjects beyond religion know who my guest is today it's Jonathan Streeter he has a YouTube channel thoughts on things and stuff I'll let you introduce yourself for people that maybe be un, maybe are unfamiliar sure um well, actually said I have a YouTube channel thoughts on things and stuff that was kind of after I had a blog originally that was the original thoughts on things and stuff and in it I originally just wanted to sort of document my own journey as I was processing and learning things um, first as a Mormon. And I didn't really start writing for that until I'd, I'd already kind of gone through the journey of deciding that uh, my membership in the church wasn't going to work out. Um, but there was a lot of things that I encountered that I wanted to kind of blurt out onto a page to organize my own thoughts and to try to... I guess, um, get the, the validation of seeing if, if those thoughts meant anything to anybody else. Cause I certainly wasn't able to get any of that validation from my family members. When I tried to talk to my brother, I had one brother in particular that tried to engage me in a lot of these things, but he came at it from a very, um, you know, I would see it as a closed mind. He, he would see it as a, a firm position in his convictions and, then that, that was kind of in the era of blogs. And then when the era of uh, video came out, I transitioned to doing video stuff. And so I guess people have seen my own journey as they can see the different subjects that I've talked about and focused on over the years and check it out. Yeah. So timeline, how long uh, when you started your blog? Uh, well, it was probably around 2014, 2015. Um, I ended up resigning from the church in 2014 and was pretty active in writing content originally. And then, um, you know, went through some bumps in my life and all these other things and, and have settled into pretty much just doing things on my own schedule whenever things strike me and I have time enough to put them together. Okay. Did you, did you go through like a phase where you're like, this was what you were doing. You were consistently doing content and, and writing and stuff. Um, and then you found other things that are important in your life or are you still doing it? Like how has yeah. um, your attention to this project? Well, come I, and gone? I, I think early on, you know, when you're in your angry phase or when you're, um, you know, you're really dealing with the aftermath in your family of the, the faith transition, 
then it's much more, you know, front and center in my mind. Um, and so that's when I would probably write or create content more. Um, the, you know, over time, I think once you process certain things, then your interest in them wanes a little bit unless some new dimension comes out. And so I feel like I've gone through and, and seen enough and said enough or maybe ex been exposed to enough on a lot of different things that I don't really engage with it too, too much more. And so I think over time, just interests have drifted and shifted. And um, I think one of the most important things that was part of my early phase was trying to really understand cult dynamics, what people were calling cult dynamics or um, undue influence. And so trying to examine my own journey through that lens was an important dimension of, of my journey. But that gave me a sensitivity to when I see um, dogmatic ideology driving a particular issue. And so I think I started to see those sort of features show up in other more non-religious culturally aspect, culturally relevant aspects of our modern discourse. And so I started to look into that a little bit more and I found there were some important and significant things to say um, about you know, subjects beyond religion. And, um, and so I've kind of explored some of those things as well. Yeah, I, I remember you had that project um, where you had a, a quiz for people to take. Yeah. Do you still keep that? Um, I don't know, like, is it a website? Do you still? It's a website. Yeah, I, I used a, um, it's like a platform where you can create a web application without having to know how to code. So um, I did that. It's isitculty.com. And that was, you know, a lot of times you'll listen to former Jehovah's Witnesses, former Scientologists, and they'll just say, it's a cult, it's a cult. And they'll talk and they'll look at the things that their group does and they'll say, this is what cults do. And the challenge is that a lot of the things that that they'll talk about, you can find in organizations and in relationships that aren't cults, that we wouldn't see as cults. And so the question then becomes like, well, how useful is both this particular you know, technique to identify a cult, how useful is the term cult? And it just ends up not being terribly useful, but there's still something there, you know, even though you can't look at one little part and and then immediately plaster the label over something, then um, that's where I felt like doing something that was an assessment tool that allowed you to kind of grade an overall rating of it would be helpful. And if I, I've, after, taking the work of other people like uh, Luna Lindsay Corbin and John DeLynn, who did things in that direction before, and then just trying to make something that anyone could take for themselves. Um, I, I think it's been helpful and informative to look at different things through that lens and kind of remind you that, uh, you know, you don't have to immediately run for the hills if you see some things that might match what cults do because there's, you know, if you're in the military, if you're in a bunch of different things, you're going to find a lot of those um, elements there, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a cult. Mm -hmm. So that was one project. Okay. And I remember watching a stream a long time ago, you were saying that you're collecting the data and look like, did you, are you able to see the back end data when people put in? Um, yeah, I, it's. And like, what ahead. was anything interesting there? I don't know. I don't know if you've ever talked well, about it's, that. It's the, the plan was originally to get enough people submitting their own results 
because you say, hey, you know, we have a score now from one to a hundred when somebody does Scientology or something. Well, that score doesn't actually mean anything because, you, you know, we had Jacob Hansen do it on Mormonism. He got a particular score. It doesn't mean anything, but because nobody said nobody's going to call their own thing a cult. But if I believe in group A and I've gotten this score, but I, from group A's perspective, know that group B, C and D are cults. If I can look at aggregate data of what people rate those things and then see that the score is not all that different from mine, then that might be a data point that there may be some introspection, room for introspection in my own perspective there. And and that's something that um, I'm hoping at some point some spark will happen where I'll be motivated to aggregate and 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 do something with that data. Right now it exists and anyone that takes and finishes uh, one of the inventories, I, I have their data for that. It, there's no identifying data. There's no saved right. name or IP address, but I just have what their score the, is. The group and the score. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I'm hopeful that that will be useful in the future sometime, but it's up and running. I don't know. I think that if it's your group that has a high score, you would just say, well, all of those, it makes sense that they work like they're supposed to, but it's Satan's counterfeit over there and mine's like the right one. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a very common <laughs> impulse. Well, no, like and, I remember thinking that. Like I remember thinking, like I could see the parallels, and and that was the apologetic thing that either I was taught in seminary or I just I don't know, maybe I came up with it, but it worked well. well. I, it's more <laughs> than just an assessment. I think when you go through something like that, particularly in the different streams that I have, you're talking to somebody from one particular group, but then you're comparing it to other groups and how it manifests in those groups. And so for the person going through and taking the test, possibly being exposed to, to some of those concepts for the first time, um, it, it can actually be an education um, mm -hmm. while they're doing it. And I think once you see some of those techniques employed in, in groups that you definitely don't have a positive sentiment towards, when it pops up again in your own group, it's going to rub you the wrong way. And I, I think like President Nelson's recent talk may have manifested that in, in the minds of some people who've been engaging in online discourse, defending the church, and then his talk comes out and it contains some of those same sort of things. And and people are like, I, I don't know about that. But oh, You're going to have to like, I haven't listened. I didn't listen to the conference. Uh, sorry. <laughs> No, that's good. That's that's a good milestone. The the year where you don't care about conference again. I'll tell you, the conferences I listen to the best were like the two right after like mm -hmm. my my collapse of belief. I never listened more intently because I was I was actually listening for a way for me to fit in, like, and I didn't oh, hear yeah. it. Like I was like, oh, I found all this stuff up there, and it was like the two hundredth anniversary of the. There's always it's always the two hundredth anniversary of something, but that particular one was of the first vision and i was like oh they're gonna they're gonna revise the first vision this is gonna be a big deal they're gonna actually incorporate mm -hmm. all of the all of the versions and of course it was just doubling down and i was like Ugh. <laughs> so but yeah yeah anyways um yeah what was what was in um president nelson's talk that you were referring oh, to well i mean Probably one of the most uh, stereotypical cult techniques will be um, to define some great reward in the life hereafter and then to set up a bunch of hoops. 
and say the only way that you're going to get that great reward in the in the life hereafter is if you follow the hoops that we in particular have set up mm -hmm. and um and so he they they did kind of a a two-pronged approach where they reaffirmed that concept that you know yes there are great blessings for you in the great beyond but you have to do these things we're not loosening up that but on the other hand they also said but don't worry like the hell mormon hell is not that bad like you know if you don't live up to every rule and the rules you're comfortable living up to well your place your kingdom in the life after is going to be where you feel most comfortable so it's actually kind of good it's like it's like you know you're living in an eternity where you have the ps4 and everybody else that did the right thing has the PS5, and that's cool. You still have the PlayStation 4, so you're good. And it, so I don't know. They're trying to find a middle way, it feels like, on that form of spiritual coercion. And people would say, well, that's not spiritual coercion. That's what religion's about. That's okay, but just go listen to some other religion define the great eternities in the hereafter and then say, you have to do what we say if you want this great blessing. And you're, and you know, you're just like, well, that that paradigm of how you assert control over people's lives by, it's kind of a, it's a subtle thing because you set up this these hoops, and it's a form of control because you say if you want this eternal chocolate bar, you have to jump through our hoops, but it's up to you, you know, mm -hmm. if you want to rot in a lesser kingdom, that's that's up to you. And so they never told you what you had to do. They never said you had to do it, but they just kind of set up the system where if you didn't choose the right way to go, then you have it. It just, it's, it, it's cringy yeah, because yeah. it, it feels like an outmoded religious paradigm, I guess. Um, you know, mm. one of the things that was an important part of my own journey was when you're raised in the church and you conceptualize religion the way the church uh, conceptualizes it to you, you get the idea that all these other churches have the same sort of hierarchy and the same polity and the same conception about authority and who they are and what they represent. And so you're like, oh, well, you know, you assume that that's the way, you know, a very concrete literal faith is the type of faith that exists out in the wider spiritual world. And I think one of the educating aspects of of being more informed about other spiritual paradigms is that that is not, in fact, the way that every other religion is done. And there are many different types of polities and there are many different conceptions of faith and the role that it plays in an individual's life and um, many different ways of experiencing religious community and religious adherence and religious belief that aren't rooted in the concrete, literal, physical notions that Mormonism is founded on. Right. And and so I guess being jolted back into that realm with Nelson's talk and things like that is, I guess that's why it rubbed me the wrong way. Is that one, is that just one that you happened to review or did you, well, listen, did I you think, listen to bits and pieces? No, I think every, you know, anytime there's a talk that generates a lot of response and reaction, then I get interested in, well, you know, oh. why is this, why is, why are people so eager to comment on this talk? And everyone, I think there's a part in it where he says, never listen to the counsel of the unbelievers or something like that. It's a very much us versus them um, type of, of move. Uh, and, and that one's an obvious 
um, problem with it, but there, there were a fair number of other issues in the talk. And I, I try to give the general authorities the benefit of the doubt. And I think there's a tendency in ex-Mormon content creators to dig through and identify the problematic parts and, and only look at the problematic parts. I've done this myself, but I think that seeing religion in sort of a different light as um, something that people can use to navigate difficulties in life. Um, to do it justice, you kind of can go in and say, okay, well, we've we've talked about the bad problematic parts about it. Now, what, what parts of the talk may actually be beneficial for someone and, and at least give some um, acknowledgement of, of that aspect of it. So I haven't done that full analysis of that talk. I'm not sure what I'm, or if I'm going to do anything with that. Yeah. I think there's some that would say that all religions are basically both. Like there is no good religion. Like just, let's just do away with all religion. Like, I don't know. Like it seemed. Yeah. Well, I, I think that um, I view religion in general as sort of a canary in the coal mine of a free society and free speech. Like the, the ability to believe something and to gather together with other believers. If, if you are in a society where they've, said, no, you cannot do that based on a religious conviction, then that's that's a huge red flag that the society that you're in is already in that kind of tyrannical totalitarian paradigm that is not a society that I would want to be in. So I, I would never want to say that all religions should be outlawed or as maybe has been popularly said in some podcast, you know, no one can ever claim to speak for God. You know, that should be illegal because like, I think part of my journey was discovering what I felt like was a moral paradigm that was not rooted in religious authority. And, you know, for me early on, that was kind of a natural rights, natural law philosophy that, you know, philosophical libertarians may root their worldview in. But regardless of whether or not you agree or disagree with with you know, whatever libertarianism is, because that has its own political dimension, it, at its philosophical basis, was a sort of moral framework that um, that then when you start to see the way that people are, um, I guess, engaging in censorship and, and a lot of the culture war stuff that we have right now, there's, there's a lot of red flags. That, um, that we're violating a lot of those principles, which were sort of ingrained in the type of free society that we had um, as an aspirational goal here in America and, and in what a lot of Western civilization was about. And I still think that those are honorable and lofty goals and principles. And so I, I'm very leery of abandoning them or demonizing them. Right. Um obviously there's like, <laughs> I just listened to, um, a debate last night on a channel called like atheist for Liberty. And I'm just going to press you in the same way that this mm -hmm. one guy was being pressed. I'm curious what you would say. Like a lot of the people are like, well, it's okay to limit certain speech or whatever. Cause it's like, um, they'll basically say, well, you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily just be like, yeah, all, all ideas are in the marketplace, right? The Overton window is wide open because we do 
kick out like certain terrible ideas like anti-Semitism and all that stuff. So like this idea of um, pushing certain ideas out of this Overton window, like there hasn't really been, states haven't been doing it too much. It's mostly like this social thing that's happening, right? And like voluntary uh, self-censorship and stuff. So like maybe people should be shamed for um, saying mean things to trans people or I don't know, like you name, yeah. take your pick of the thing that's in the culture war right yeah. now. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think to start with, there's the line between uh, official government censorship that has some sort of force behind it. And so I, I agree with you that a lot of what we're seeing right now is more it, it's not so much the state censorship, although we're seeing that there may have been an element of that in the way that the federal government has interfered with social media platforms in compelling them to reduce and diminish the signal of certain ideas and certain things. But, you know, that's that's a, a topic that you could spend a lot of time on. Mm -hmm. um, so so apart from federal or government type of censorship, this question of what people are calling cancel culture, it's something that, you know, if you start to criticize it, people say, well, no, no, these are the consequences of you saying bad ideas. And I, I think that the reality is, is that we are social creatures and we, you know, those consequences are going to exist for, for whatever reason. There is a notion about the, the reasons that you don't want government to censor things, but then there's also just uh, on principle, the, the reason that you want the freedom to be able to listen to other perspectives. And I think that is the, the principle that gets lost in these calls for censorship. So even if you don't agree with something, we can't all talk about every single thing at all forums. So, uh, you know, there has to be a window of, of things that rise to the level of, of being um, brought into a, a discourse. And, and so at some point, some ideas are not going to be heard. And that's just the way that you have to organize the way that our discourse works. Mm -hmm. But to say that certain ideas should never be brought up, even when they may be relevant, or they may be um, pertinent to a discussion, just de facto, they shouldn't be brought up or can't be brought up. Or if they are brought up, a certain idea or a certain perspective immediately gets you blacklisted. I think that is an idea that like a virus can spread and, and, a, and a society can adopt it or certain people can adopt it, particularly when their um, desire to exclude ideas from a particular forum is motivated by ideological, um, you know, restrictions on that. You know, these ideas are inherently wrong because of some dogma that I've accepted. And so we cannot give any platform or air to them. Well, that's, I think that's the impulse that I would like to see more people push back against. And, mm -hmm. and so you can say, I disagree with these ideas. These ideas are deplorable. They're not worthy of public debate. And I'll tell you why. And, and but that at, at that point is an, analyzing it. But then you also have to let the other person art, articulate why they think it should be. And, and then let, you know, kind of the, the process. Fall where they yeah. Mean. Um, and certainly, you know, ideas that are bad, that lose favor, will have social consequences and those will bear out in time. But I, I think even when there's people um, dealing with like the trans issue will frequently be polarizing. If you don't have the proper set of opinions on this issue, you will be labeled a bigot and deplatformed or anytime you try to poke your head up and, and say something, then people say, hey, aren't you 
the bigot who has these bad ideas. And so it's, it's kind of a social ostracism sort of thing, but those are kind of lofty conceptual conversations that can happen when you have somebody in your life who is, um, I guess, steeped in those ideas and you start to see how it maybe the the level of discourse that's happening online that's vilifying people is totally removed from the real experience that you know your own child may be having as they go through it mm -hmm. and um and i think that's something that gets lost uh, in this you know yeah for sure like i was i think i think the thing that bothers me uh when this is happening in public discourse is you'll have somebody be accused of one idea and then they say no I don't believe that I believe maybe this thing over here and then the accusation is well that's just a dog whistle for this actual thing that you really believe over here so they're telling you what you believe and I actually see this happening um with like the I I don't notice it as much anymore because I'm not like in the debate anymore. But when I first left the church, I would, um, it really bothered me that people would assume what the other person believed. Um, mm -hmm. when they say, I believe this and they say, no, you actually believe this. So it'd be like an ex Mormon telling a Mormon, well, you actually believe this or vice versa. Like it would be a, a Mormon saying, well, you left for this reason, actually. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're saying you left because of this, but you actually left for this reason. Um, and so I, I mean, I think that's just kind of like maybe a tribal thing, but that's probably the biggest irritation I have. When you actually talk to people, it seems like you agree way more than you disagree. Mm -hmm. Like I've, I've noticed that um, I haven't been hanging around the three practice uh, group very much, but that's where we would um, host these circles and different topics. And I'd have conversations like after hours with some of them and they're all very left leaning and I'm still quite conservative. And after just like talking to them, she's like, Oh, well, so we don't really disagree that much. And it's like, Nope. <laughs> and yeah. So anyways, um, but yeah, I, I don't know. That was, that was one thought. No, I, I think some of the, some of those impulses are just kind of the normal way that humans engage with each other, knowing that there are those tribalism circuits and there's yeah. also wanting to win an argument. And there's also the virtue signaling that is, you know, when you're in a social environment where you know other people are watching you argue, well, there's there's things that you become motivated to do. And um, and I, I think things like perhaps the circle groups that you're talking about, um, other strategies that have been used to try to work against those impulses and focus a conversation to find those areas of agreement, or at least not to inflame the areas of disagreement but to be more constructive have been helpful for me to to process and to kind of understand so certainly how to have impossible conversations by peter bogosian and james lindsay was an important book for me i did a series of um kind of general conference talks uh undue influence in general conference where luna lindsay corbden and i would listen to a talk and um point out the aspects of undue influence were in it and i think this was very, very early in, in my video journey. And I was very eager at that point to be really critical and to only be critical. And Luna kind of modeled for me, giving them space 
to find goodness in what they do and what they believe and, and the benefit of the doubt. And, and it was really helpful for me to not go down the angry apostate, it, the church is all bad, there's no good in it sort of pathway. And I think having that moderating perspective early on in my journey was helpful for me to continue to look for making sure that I don't turn into a demon, something that is not completely demonic. And um, and I think the work that Peter Bogosian has been doing with what he is calling spectrum epistemology is really instructive. And, and one of my side projects is to try to find a, an online way to engage with topics using that sort of paradigm mm -hmm. where you ask people to kind of just give a degree of confidence with which they feel on a particular issue and then just use that as a framework for digging into why somebody feels or why somebody believes a certain thing and whether or not there's anything that might convince them to change the strength of their confidence in that belief one way or the other and that type of discussion or debate, it's not really a debate as much as it is as an, an epistemological exploration of why do you believe this particular mm. thing? I think that that's cool. really helpful to gain insight. And so I've tried to shape a lot of the discussions that I have around that, I guess, that sentiment. That's really cool. I think that would be cool. I, I've seen Read Nice Wonder try to do an online version um, before I, I don't think it really took off. They they do all kinds of experimenting with like straight epistemology in general. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I I want I've I've wanted to bring uh, those three practice circles to more people. And I feel like people are unwilling to like register and like show up to a mm -hmm. Zoom meeting. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you get a few here and there that will pop in, and most people like it. Um, but I was like, as I wonder if there's a way to do that publicly so it can be seen and then people know what it is and that way it's more advertised so they're not scared to click on a link and register i don't know um i also kind of i, I got a little i wouldn't say i got burnt out um we had some health issues in our family that i took a break from it and i just haven't gotten back on mm -hmm. but i um I don't know. That's still like near and dear to my heart. I think it's a really good model. And it's, what's interesting to me is I had this view of people on the left were not for that kind of discussion because in my head, people on the left wouldn't talk to people on the right and people on the left are trying to like, um, like censor free speech, all of these things that I do feel like there's a, a small minority trying to do. But when I engaged with those, what I found is that the more open people are the ones that are willing to be there, which also tend to be on the left. So it was always one-sided. <laughs> There's always people on the left. And then people on like more with more conservative views, I think they felt um, outnumbered. And, and so they maybe didn't return to for that reason. So, um, but I would love to like have stuff like that where it was more balanced on both sides. I also did some ex-Mormon Mormon ones um, with... David Osler, he was trying to get something going there. But the problem there was that it was always super sympathetic to the ex-Mormon side, but not really to traditional Mormon beliefs, which yeah. obviously, why is someone going to come participate if they're just going to get bagged on the whole time? So yeah, um, so that kind of fell apart too. But um, anyways, I, I, I have that sentiment too, that it would be fun to be able to like 
give people practice so they can use it in their real life. Yeah. Uh, anyways. Well, that that's kind of one of the things that I think Brett Weinstein tweeted recently that um, when you go into the world of psycho, uh, evolutionary psychology and you start to realize that it was a, just with evolutionary biology, they're both part of the evolution of the human species, religion is an evolutionary factor. It is it is just as much a part of the evolution of the human species as other psychological things. And so that, um, you know, that it makes it harder just to paint it as all bad. And I think it, it, it was really transformative for me to shift away from the factual, logical analysis of the church and into that evolutionary psychology perspective of the church. And, and that was probably the most mind-blowing thing because it's kind of like, you know, you it, it most easily stated, you could say, well, the, the Dumbo feather metaphor, you know, the Dumbo's feather was a lie. But what it did is it helped him focus his own confidence, his own energy, his own abilities. And it, it caused him to do more and be more because of that lie. And, in, and, and even when he discovered it was a lie, he was still, he had the benefit of, of that. And so hmm. seeing how there's some aspects of religion, which even if the justifications for some of the ways that it shapes your life, whether it's your beliefs, your values, your principles, some of those justifications may be based on a lie but the justification itself has a ripple effect in your life. And it, and, and it also has a ripple effect in the cohesion of your family and in the transmission of whatever it is that is your family into the next generation and the replication of the values and the progress and the prosperity that you have. Like all of those things are encoded somehow in how um, whatever the collection of values and principles that are embodied in a particular religion has. And so you can look at religions that that grew in a flash in a pan, had crazy out, you know, outrageous values and principles and things that they added into an individual's life. And if it did not do a good job of increasing the, the stability and the prosperity and the intergenerational transmission in that group, then it disappeared. And it, it did not stand this test of time. So you could think of Heaven's Gate, you know, that, that it was not an intergenerational religion because it, they killed themselves. And then if you just compare Mormons versus Jehovah's Witnesses, well, Jehovah's Witnesses also have a, a focus on family, and that's good, but they don't have that focus on education. And so the average, you know, prosperity that a family is going to accumulate and then have that be a source of a uh, step up for the next generation is not as strong as in Mormonism, which places a very strong emphasis on education. And then you can contrast that with Scientology, where they, they consider the kids to be like a, a they're, they're noise and they, they disincentivize people who are in their priestly ranks from having children because that detracts them from stuff. And so that poses a challenge to the intergenerational transmission of that particular belief system. And, and I think just looking at Coming to this realization made me re-examine Mormonism, say, well, okay, well, hold on a second. Other than the, the fact that a lot of the justification for some of the things in Mormonism is rooted in, in false claims and lies, there's something that it conveys to its members 
that I can look at from a secular perspective and understand there's some value there. And so you could even, I mean, so anything that we as Mormons could take and criticize. So, you know, baptism at age eight, well, a, a person at age eight doesn't really have the mental capacity to understand right and wrong in these complex sort of situations. And it's really coercive and manipulative to get them to make a commitment for the rest of their life at age eight. And so you can go on and on about how problematic it is, but you could also say, well, wait a second, what we're doing is we're saying at an early age, we're having a conversation with a kid and we're introducing the idea that they are responsible for their actions and some of their actions can have negative consequences and some can have positive consequences and that they need to start thinking about that at a young age. And there's something I think important about having some reason, some time where you have that conversation with the kid. Mm -hmm. And so you can, you can look at almost all the different parts of the culture of Mormonism that may be justified by some religious decree, some scripture somewhere or something, and try to say, well, wait a second, what is the practical benefit that this particular thing has? And certainly not all of them are going to have practical benefits. Some of them may actually not have much of value. And, and, and so you wouldn't want to um, abandon, you wouldn't want to hold on to it. But I think there's some things that, that you might, might actually be the baby with the bathwater that you don't want to throw out. And, um, and so I, I guess that was an aside about, you know, the whole evolutionary perspective of the church and how it's, it maybe may cause you to look at it in a slightly different light. Yeah. No, that's good. Um, I, I was thinking about, I talk about this podcast that um, Jordan Peterson had with Sam Harris because it was a pretty uh, pivotal time for me because that's the first time I ever realized, like, I don't believe in ghosts. I don't believe in, like, supernatural stuff. And I never, like, looked at Joseph Smith while I was thinking about that at the same time until during that podcast. I don't know if they talked about Mormonism or something that sparked it. Um, but whatever it was that I, I, I was on a run and I was listening to that podcast and that was a painful podcast, <laughs> but it was kind of talking a little, it's related. Maybe you won't think so, but they're talking about truth the whole time. I don't know if you're familiar, if you ever. Oh no, I, I absolutely believe that it's related. And this, this moment that you're describing, you know, that was a, a huge mind blowing moment for me. Cause I, I also felt like it was a really frustrating, annoying podcast. Why wouldn't this Jordan Peterson person just get to the point and concede about truth because objective reality and truth is what Exist. we are interested in. That's all yeah. we need to know. Yeah. And, and I think that that, I've, if you are open enough to consider the importance of that conversation and and the implications of it and where things have gone in our society since then i think it's it's pretty important right but i don't want to i don't i want to hear what what crossed through your mind while you were jogging well so i've brought this up in other places be, because that's the point when i was like oh is it's joseph smith really like did he do what he said he did and i was like actually i don't think i believe that and and i was like well what does that mean and it didn't mean anything for three more years so anyway moving on the the, re the thing i was going to really um talk about was just how like you were talking about how it's like evolutionary true evolutional it's a evolutionarily true i don't know if that's even a word okay so it's true because it survives right it's pragmatically true and that's how well 
it, I, I guess I, I want to have a caveat. I think the fact that we're using the word true in those two different domains is causing more of a problem. Like, I think it's it's yes. good to use the word truth for objective, testable things that can stand falsification challenges. And you can talk about true in that realm. And I think when we're talking about evolutionary things, when you use the same word in that domain that you're using in the other, you're introducing a problem. Like if you just oh, had a different sure. word that you used to talk about these other things, then there would be no reason for them to have an eight hour discussion about the definition of truth. That's that's fair. I, I guess the the uh, it's hard to articulate the thought. Um, so I guess I feel like you were you were kind of talking about how like I wonder if there's an articulate like you can't articulate the truths that you pass down with religion. Like you can't. And there's this idea. This is a Jordan Peterson idea where before you can actually say kind of act it out and before you act it out, like you, you think it or whatever, like there's, there's this like progression of before you can actually articulate a thought because that's actually pretty far down from the, the, the thing, whatever it is. Right. Right. Um, and so like, maybe there's these real things that are true that it's like, beyond our conscious comprehension, you know, kind of a kind of idea. Um, and I, I don't know, I guess that's where I have like a lot of humility uh, when it comes to feeling like whether I'm actually definitely on the right path. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like I'm where I'm supposed to be and I feel like I'm progressing in my life and that feels a lot better than being stuck. So I'm, I'm okay with it, but I, I definitely, it was really hard. Let, let me change subject just slightly. It was really hard for me for a while to give grace to my family that still believed in Mormonism when it was so obviously wrong. And I've really honestly got to a point where I can't honestly participate in Mormonism, but I am not sure I'm honestly like the one that's on the right path, if that makes sense. Like, um, Whether I'm on the more wise path, I don't know how else to put it, but um, yeah, I have some skepticism, I guess, of the nun path because I'm not sure it goes anywhere. Yeah. So anyways. Well, I think what I started to do to reconcile a lot of this is to step back and realize that um, kind of in separating the objective claims of truth from what people have called pragmatic truth or useful truth or just mm -hmm. things that convey some form of advantage, whether it's an advantage in helping a human mind come to terms with the chaos and the tragedy and the difficulties of life, or whether it's a, a, a truth that helps a family stay together and to weather the storms, or whether it's a truth that helps a society stay cohesive and deal with all of the different challenges that a society has at all those different levels. But what I started to see is that I could look at Mormonism as a collection of values in addition to the, the claims. And if you talk to a believing member, they have a bunch of values and those values are justified by the claims, the truth claims. And when I talk with my brother, I realized that I have pretty much the same values that he does. You know, there's a few differences here and there. It's just the same values. Now, I believe those values are worthwhile and good, not because some prophet said that, uh, you know, an angel appeared and declared it unto him, but because I think there's a, a, a an actual benefit 
to holding to those values. And those benefits are near and dear to my heart and I believe are effective in the you know, navigation of a life that optimally produces happiness and prosperity and stability. I've started to see stability as like a really important value that I did not understand was so important when I was younger, but it really is. And um, and so I see, you know, Mormons in that believing frame are very, very similar to me in terms of values. I can feel comfortable being in a group of Mormons because I understand what their values are and they're within a, a frame that I am familiar with and comfortable with. And whether or not those values are justified by wackadoo claims that are easily debunkable or you can see the, the problems is not that important. The, the important part is the values. And I, I think this becomes particularly important when you go and you, um, you know, it's, it's, an, it's an adventure to go and explore different secular communities afterwards, after you uh, leave Mormonism. And it may be that there was a time in America where society was so homogeneous that you saw various different, you know, expressions of what were traditionally Protestant beliefs or Judeo-Christian beliefs. But now the realm of beliefs and the realm of values that are out there are so varied and in some cases so opposed to what I may have as a value. And it's not that they're opposed in a live and let live framework, but they're opposed in a paradigm of you're a bad person if you don't also have these same values that we have. And it's, you know, it's, it's, you, you're okay with navigating that by yourself. But when you think about, well, how are you going to bring up children in that environment? How are you going to allow the children themselves to integrate their own identities and to navigate the different milestones that it takes to get to adulthood and to maintain a stable, cohesive sense of identity and, and a, a purpose and, and meaning in life. And, there are challenges if you don't have the structure that a religion has. It doesn't mean that it's impossible. Mm -hmm. It just, it, I guess your community then is a little bit more fractured because it's it's harder to do those things with a community that has so many um, values that take you in different directions. And so I think part of the evolutionary advantage of religious paradigms is the community dimension of it. And that community dimension of it helps an individual or a family within the within the community unit as a whole to navigate challenges and um, overcome hardships. And that is something that you just, I, it, it really, I mean, John DeLynn has talked about this a few times, you know, religion does community good, well when it's, you know, done in a healthy paradigm. And it just, the, the secular communities do not, they try and they, they generally don't. I mean, and, it's like the three practicing I just described. Yeah. And, and people fall apart. And so you say, wait a second, is it is it that you have to kind of have some of these culty things in order to, <laughs> to get survive. people to wake up on Sunday? You have and to have to some keep dogma going? to hold you together. Yeah. Hmm. <clears throat> I, I was thinking about, I'm not sure churches save you from this like cultural thing that you're talking about. Like, I'm pretty sure like the churches get hijacked by the government ideology just as well as anything else and it like am i wrong I'm, I'm pretty sure like in germany the churches didn't stop any of the bad things from happening and um i don't know maybe they did away with churches in some of i think russia was probably they just did away with churches didn't they yeah um 
So I don't know if churches are going to save you from that kind of. Uh, well, I mean, churches are not thing. all the same. I, yeah. I think that that and anytime like, you talk with people about religion or churches, then it becomes tempting to just talk about them in block. But just like there's differences in in, you know, any organization, how they conduct themselves, how they yeah. may, you know, the the. In speaking of stability being an important factor, then that when you see that, then it becomes important, I think, for you to look at historically hesitance to change is not always a bad thing. Like there's some things where there's some flash in the pan social movements that may get a lot of noise and a lot of attention, but carry with them a dissolving of some of the important principles that hold something together. And so, you know, like you could just look back at the hippie movement and free love and all of the different things that went along with that. And it was important at the time. It got a lot of press at the time. It felt liberating at the time. But those things and a lifestyle built on those things wasn't really looking for intergenerational cohesion and stability. And, it, and we're seeing today things like polyamory uh, have you know, become socially relevant and popular and and even touted as perhaps a higher form of love or a more ethical form of love. And so if a, you know, if a church's boundaries are so loose that they immediately adopt any social movement that comes on, they may actually be shooting themselves in the foot. And that's not to say, you know, that the other end of that is an, a group that never changes. And that carries its own problems as well. So I think Mormonism is, is in between those two extremes. It's probably in the hesitant to change stream. Um, end of things but it's still you know as you say it gets influenced by government you know why do we have mormon church leaders interfacing with the united nations in a way that seems antithetical to its yeah. founding ideas yeah um well that kind of is a good segue like i've i've kind of i've seen it seems like politics are like the new i mean you can define religion a lot of ways and obviously you could define politics as a religion in a pretty loose sense, but it seems like it's like the most important religion in people's lives. Like even, and and this is probably a really good example. Like it seems like I could get along with Jacob Hansen probably better than, um, uh, Delph on like, the shelf. <laughs> well, yeah. Like, like as a friend, like if we were to hang out, that's not totally true. I've got a lot of woke friends and we hang out and we're fine. So I probably get along with them just fine because you just don't talk about what you disagree with. That's well, I was generally about to say. What, do, that's generally you, what, no, no. Actually, with, see, one, I friend, think with one friend I do. This points out a difference that's important. No, though. with one friend I do. And it's pretty um, it's pretty mild. Um, but every once in a while, when we go to lunch and it's just us, we will. But like if we're with everybody, then we don't talk about politics. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm outside the mainstream idea. I'm like a conspiracy theorist. You are too. If you are saying that Peter Bogosian and his James Lindsay, his friend, are um, decent people to listen to, that's mainstream online. I think there's there's a such a mainstream, significant divide between what is public mainstream opinion. in mainstream and online and among among elite intelligentsia academic circles and then there's who run everything 
yeah. So but, now but, I'm a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> I was listening to a podcast, uh, Decoding the Gurus, and their favorite people to decode are all of the contrarian thinkers. So they'll basically they'll take um, little pieces of what somebody has said, and then they'll just talk about how bad it is and how problematic it is. And in their, mm -hmm. their big bad wolf is like, if anybody kind of sounds a little contrarian, they're attacking like Jordan Peterson, who they wouldn't consider, I don't think, center, <laughs> no. which is what's really weird. So He's they'll, far right. Yeah, yeah. Like, so that's what's really weird. Although... I have been well, curious about Jordan Peterson lately. I'm not on Twitter a lot and he he's been talking in these like poems and I don't get it. <laughs> so I, I don't follow him religiously. Uh, you know, I agree with a lot of the things that I've seen him talk about and yeah. I think there's some, a too there's passionate. Stuff. well, yeah, I think him and a few other people that defend religion, I I'm there for some of the defenses, but I, there's no, it seems like this whole thing where they're, it's almost like they're saying religion is good without seeing that. No, there's, there's definitely some problems that show up in these religious groups and, well, and you can't be. just. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no I, I lost my thread. Sorry. So, and it, I was just going to say like, it could be that like in broad society, maybe we have a lack of like religiosity, but certainly in bubbles, you're going to have problems with, fundamentalism you know what i mean so it's mm -hmm. so weird to break out of a bubble of fundamentalism and like step out into a world that is probably a little aimless i guess you know like mm -hmm. it i feel well, that's like where like that... consumerism and all that stuff the stuff that the left doesn't like either by the way like this mm -hmm. you know capitalism they'll blame on capitalism but i i don't know like um yeah. So anyway, there's there's definitely. Well, what do you see the landscape? Because you're describing the, the wider social landscape. And and I think viewers of my channel will realize that I went in a different direction than a lot of the ex-Mormons will. So what is your take on the landscape of it? Because it, it does seem like the ex once you lose the moral framework of Mormonism, then you still have a need for feeling that you're a good person. And there's a great secular moral framework for you to immediately adopt, which is that critical social justice perspective. And so if you immediately adopt it, it, it tells you who's good, who's bad, what are the good ideas, what are the bad ideas. And then you can immediately look at the world in judgment, look at yourself in, you know, and make sure that you're one of the good people. And it gives you now this, what is essentially a religious moral framework. It's just that rather than a divine religion, it's it's this critical social justice religion. And I think a lot of people accept it on face value without exploring the philosophical underpinnings and history of that movement and those ideas and those ways of framing reality and society. And so it just seems right. And that's where a lot of ex-Mormons went. And I've, I've liked to think that I've kind of said, no, we, we, there needs to be another voice here, another perspective on it, because you're not getting it from Mormon stories. I mean, that is so clearly, I mean, from John Larson, who's just saying, I'm an avowed socialist, mm -hmm. to um, Zelf on the Shelf, who I always have a soft part of my heart for them because, you know, I they were kind of came out a little bit after I did and, you know, were way more successful than I was. And they were one of the few people that actually stood up for me in the whole apology debacle of mm. 2015 or whatever. So, I, you know, 
as much as I disagree with some of the direction and the things that they have, I still see them, they've, they've changed and evolved over time and maybe there's growth and, and room for them to continue doing that. Mm-hmm. But, but there's very little in terms of conservative or um, non super progressive. Yeah. Yeah. Ex Mormon voices out there. I, I was shocked because I thought it was common knowledge. Like what, what I was believing about the woke stuff. So I was actually shocked that when I kind of, became more familiar with what was going on in the ex-Mormon space that everyone was falling for it. And I think it's just kind of like a natural progression. Like, I don't think people realize what they're adopting when I think they just have really big hearts. They have a lot of empathy. They have a lot of caring and it's, it certainly looks a lot opposite of church. (laughs) So it's like, well, the church said this was bad. And then they realized that's not bad. And then what else isn't bad? You know, yeah. like it's pretty, I, I don't blame anyone for going down that path at all. Um, well, that's why it's so ironic that your quote would be that the atheist movement would benefit from critical social justice because it was critical social justice that blew up the atheism 2.0 movement or atheism plus movement. Um, yeah. You know, it, it was the inherently divisive social result of adopting that mindset of dividing everybody up into oppressors and oppresses based on intersectional identity categories. There's no society that is, you know, full of diverse people can exist if everybody's looking out for oppression and, and domination and victimhood Power. based on those different things. It's just, it's, that's where, like, I think seeing how that mindset dissolves any type of social cohesion, studying the history of the, um, how those ideas, as they are expressed in Marxism, resulted in in Russia, and how they were transformed into Mao's philosophy, and how it transformed China. Like all those are very instructive, and they should remind you of like, okay, so then a religion that does have some concepts can actually be cohesive rather than destructive. So like seeing humanity as all children of God is a unifying belief that, that, Mm. you know, even if it's rooted in some divine claim has the functional result of a basis for people to see humanity as a foundational identity that gives people a, a reason to come together. And then the principle of grace and forgiveness and redemption, you know, those things weigh centrally pretty heavily in a lot of different religious paradigms, but they are woefully lacking in whatever it is that you know grows out of a foundation of critical social justice mm-hmm. um and so i think looking at the contrast between how a set of values and beliefs shapes a society that adopts it or a community that adopts it is an important dimension of kind of looking at, at where you go after you leave the church yeah I'm so I'm trying to decide. I want to ask you about your relationship with other public podcasters, but I am actually curious about it, but I'm not sure if you want to like say it publicly either. (laughs) I I think it's just, I, you know, I'm friendly with most of them. Right. And, um, you know, we shoot messages to each other. I think mm-hmm. they know that I'm not quite on the same page with some things and they've been cordial and nice to me. And um, 
I think it's started a new thread without you, probably. <laughs> Just kidding. Well, that could be. That very well <laughs> could kidding. be. Um, but you know, I think just like some of them have been open to exploring some of the ideas. I think a lot of them were surprised that I've confronted the trans issue as in directly as I have. Mm -hmm. Even though for me, I just look at it as like I've I've wanted to talk about it for a long time, but it's just been terrifying. Mm-hmm. And so I finally found ways to do it. And, and I have my own story about why that issue was important to me. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the phenomenon of detransitioners is a wave that is going to hopefully get a lot of people to re-examine their beliefs on that issue. Um, but Do you know what's interesting about that is what's that? anytime I've heard that can that conference like if if um there's when you bring up detransitioners to like someone that's trans and an activist they'll say well that's only one percent i'm like yes but that's the margins that's the marginalized of your own little group don't you care about your marginalized the marginalized of the marginalized and they don't give a crap well and and if you dig into well where did you get that one percent from and you look at the way that studies are designed data is collected and look at the medical side of these things, which that's where it, it, I think that was my window into it is I can examine the medical claims and look at that from an objective basis. And, um, you know, the, the, the discourse on that whole subject is so distorted by dogmatic ideological activists, both within the medical profession, as well as influencing the medical profession and certainly on social media. Um, it is, it's a very challenging issue and it it has like remarkable effects you know if it, if this was if our generation was the the young people were all being hippies and they were going out and having free love and drugs and everything okay well a lot of those things you, you go through that and you explore your identity and your personhood and and what is right for you and that you you integrate your identity and you live your life and there's you know it was a bump in the road or a nexus in your journey but the way that the medicalization of this new identity exploration has the effect of irreversible surgical and hormonal changes, sterilization, um, where people cannot have kids coming on, you know, lifelong medical consequences of having to dilate uh, neo-vagina for the rest of their life, all of the pain and complications that go along with it, all these things that are diminished on the front end, when young people are exposed to these ideas, um, I, I, you know, to be frank, I went through this journey coming out of Mormonism. I learned a lot about culty techniques, and then I had somebody in very close to me talk about experiencing gender dysphoria and going through the journey of becoming trans. And I set out to understand. I wanted to understand. I wanted to support. I wanted to be an ally. I started reading books. I started looking at things and the red flags about cultiness were going off the charts. But it's it's different because, you know, in a religion, there's like a strong figure there. You can point to him. He's making claims. He's a narcissist and 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 he wants all the power. Well, this isn't like that. This is like different. It's not a cult of personality. It's like a cult of ideology and a cult of identity. And it's diffused over an entire social movement. 
but all of the things that you would identify in a cult in terms of information control, in terms of fear mongering, in terms of us versus them, elitism, like all these different things that we could point to a cult and say, this is why you are overriding the agency of the people who are under your thrall. You know, those are happening, but it's happening in a distributed way where rather than, you know, one crab stomping everybody down, you have all the crabs pulling each other down. And when I started to see that, I was like, well, hold on a second. This is this is a problem because there's, you know, the idea is out there that, you know, these that ideology, somebody's ideas and beliefs could never do what gender dysphoria is doing. Nobody would ever want to, you know, remove or change their genitals or their um, sexuality based on, you know, beliefs that could be mistaken. But when you study Heaven's Gate, that's exactly what they did. They believed that their innate inner identity was a being that transcended humanity and that the this human sexuality was actually antithetical to the true essence. And so they wanted to become eunuchs. And they talked about this justification for eunuchs. You can go to the Heaven's Gate what YouTube channel and hear Marshall Applewhite talk about the, the, the rationality for removing your genitals um, because of a system of beliefs. And so beliefs do have the power to cause somebody to want to physically transform their body. And when you see that, and then you start to listen to detransitioners, I, I think Benjamin Boyce's channel, where he started just getting transition people who had gone down the trans pathway and then stepped away, talk about their journey. You start to see that dogma and ideology are rife throughout that. And it's influencing young children at the most vulnerable part of their lives where their identity is in question. They're trying to differentiate themselves from their family. They're dealing with all of the anxiety and depression and other issues. And here's a ready set identity that gives them social clout. It gives them a social circle. It gives them validation and it gives them celebration in, in peers. And they can frame it within the construct of gender dysphoria and those beliefs and adopting those perspectives and that narrative do transform your mind. And so the experience of gender dysphoria that comes out of that is real, but there's an ideological dimension in at least some people. And it's probably a whole lot more than some, because when you look at the historical rates of this being a persistent problem, it's it's a very select and small population. Certainly, nothing like the you know thousand percentage growth that we've seen in the same population that gets affected by social contagion, whether it's cutting or suicide or eating disorders. It's that young women population, and it's the same population that's affected by it. And so, I think going to and having my eyes opened to how that you know the same things that I learned about how coercive religions can shape the worldview and the self-image of an individual can operate in other non-religious domains. And certainly we could say, well, yeah, it happens in politics, right? You know, all these Trump followers, you see him as their God. So it's, you know, political things can be culty. Then you can study the communist movement in China. You can say, yeah, that's totally culty. As a matter of fact, like the whole reason that we can talk about cults and thought reform is because some guy went and studied what they did there. That was Robert Lifton, and he published a book about it, and that spawned the whole movement of sociologists trying to understand and psychologists trying to understand how co 
coercive control and you know thought reform can shape an individual's conception of themselves in such that they would take actions for themselves that you would not conceive of that anyone would want to do for themselves. So I think that dimension of it gets lost because if you want to talk about it, you are, um, you know, there's ready-made thought terminating cliches of, oh, it's just 1%. Oh, you're a bigot if you think that there's anything like that. Oh, you're talking about conversion therapy and clearly that's bad. And so, you know, you're one of the bad ones. And um, I think that's where I know that there are differences in, in position between myself and some of the other podcasters. There's, you know, I, I think going on the journey that I went to because it was important to me for people in my family and in my life, um, it's, I think it's significant. And if I had not done that research and if I had just said, okay, well, you know, let's get you what you want right now then looking at those same people today, how they identify today, the hopes and dreams that they have for themselves and their future today, I would have shut all of that off for them. Mm. If I had gone down the hormonal and the surgical route at the time that that's what they were looking for. And so we went from a world where we were trying to convey to children that you're good enough the way you are and that the way that we shape you into a healthy adult who has an integrated identity as we reaffirm that you're good enough and and that yes there are challenges in life but there are tools that you're equipped with that you can deal with it we've, we've thrown that away and now we're in the well you know there's something you know that's a mismatch between who you are and what you are and we're going to apply all of these things that just happen to benefit the the same pharmaceutical and medical industry that we would criticize in any other domain mm-hmm. um but we're going to go right down that that pathway here so right I don't know of too many other ex-Mormon podcasters that have expressed any opinions one way or the other. Chris Hanna, I think, um, and his crew of unruly, problematic men, cis hetero white men. Are, they're, probably, um, they're white Christian nationalists. He can ignore yeah, them. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I keep, I don't know. I think that that may make it harder, for example, for John DeLynn to ever have me on his show again okay i that was kind of what i wanted to bring up you were on bill reel's channel the other day and i was and i I don't know bill reel is actually pretty open like he hasn't kicked me out right so (laughs) so he he is pretty open he definitely believes what he believes but i love how he has stayed true to that idea that his own ideas aren't the only ideas i guess like Mm -hmm. I, i really like that about bill but um, but no, I was I was dying a little bit inside because I knew like all of most a lot of his listeners are going to be on that on the on that social justice activism train in some degree or another. At least if they're not on it, they're okay with it. And so anyway, I just I don't understand. Well, I think it's survive. a thing now. Maybe you won't survive after this if I publish it. Maybe I shouldn't. No. <laughs> no, I think your audience probably is in the right frame of mind for it. But I think it's an expected yeah. thing now. If I ever do show up on Bill's channel or John DeLynn for whatever reason, then I'm going to get in the live stream. There's going to be like, oh, he's a transphobe. He's a bigot. Like, I already get that. And mm-hmm. then, uh, and then, oh, this is the guy that did the racist apology. Um, you know. So you haven't F- lived down F- off guy. of that one. 
No, no, no. That's I'm I'm deep in the cultural memory for that one among oh. certain. See, that was before my time, so I guess I didn't feel the full gravity of that. I'm sure you did, though. Yeah, it was my first cancellation experience. It was my only cancellation experience, really. So it was oh, no. it was an interesting thing to go through. Huh. And well, here I am. I still I still talk, so I wasn't yeah. canceled totally. Right. But it was stressful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been an hour. Um, All right. I really appreciate it. Sure. Well, it's been more than an hour. Uh, well, I think we got started just a little bit late, but. Okay. All right. Well, well it's it's great having a chat. Yeah. <clears throat> Thanks for coming on. I'm glad we could finally line it up. And yeah. right, is there anything you're excited about that you're working on? Uh, are you going to publish anything on your channel? Mm, anything else let's coming? Let's see. I, I, I am a terrible organizer. And so I start the ball rolling on different projects and I, I think of different ideas and and I do a bunch of research on them and and then I just never finish them. So I have like a butt ton of stuff like that. And I get distracted. I you like know, I started to focus. <laughs> yeah, well, I started focusing on family stuff and kid priorities. And I got married earlier this year. And so I just have so much more in my life that I enjoy doing and people I enjoy spending time with that it's it's there's smaller and smaller windows to do stuff uh online. But I like I don't I'm I'm having fun with artificial intelligence and uh, image creation and voice cloning. And there might be some fun projects coming out with that kind of yeah. in the humorous realm of things. Well, I love that. I actually had a listener send me an email and said, I single-handedly brought him back into the Mormon space. I'm like, no, that's not what I want to do. Because I honestly, I feel like it's a good thing to move on and like pay more attention to your life. I don't know. There's this part of me that I would love for like Cardin Ellis and John DeLynn to hang out together. They're both really tall guys. I think they'd really get along. Like it really bothers me how much animosity that is like, I, there are things, my knee jerk reaction. I think I get more knee jerk reactions from the woke stuff. I really do. Like that's my knee jerk reaction. It bugs me. Um, but at the same time, like, it just takes me five seconds to realize, oh, that's that's where they're at. And they think that's good. Oh, that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about. I don't know. What's that? Do you have, do you have another 15 minutes? I, I really make did. make it quick. Okay. So there's this idea, like, good versus evil. Like, is there really evil? Like, are evil people, when they're doing their thing, like, that I consider evil, are they just doing what they think is right? Does, does that make sense? Do people in their mind know they're doing evil things and then do it anyway? Does that make sense? Uh, I think do, that there. What do you think on that? I think for the most part, for most people, they see themselves as the hero. They have a set of principles that that they are acting under it, the guidance of, and they they believe they're doing right. And I will give people the benefit of the doubt for that. Yeah. That being said, there's a whole profession of psychology that has identified that there are personalities that for whom social rules and and good versus evil is means less than i do what i want to do and that can be at the expense of other people's lives other people's interests and mm -hmm. and any guilt or shame that i have just does not compute in it and and you know there are pathologic personalities that will conduct themselves that way and and i've heard people 
cite that reality as a reason to say, well, there's no, you know, we're not, there's no free will because it's just those people have the chemicals in their brain and they choose that and there's no objective morality anyway. And so we should just, I, I think that abandoning morality itself or abandoning the idea that there are behaviors which are good and behaviors which are bad and behaviors which should be prohibited is not the direction we want to go as a society. I think that there's still an important dimension to that. And, um, and so what do you root that in? And I think just from a game theory perspective, and I think that the whole golden rule concept or non-aggression concept is a decent starting point to try to build things from mm -hmm. um, where you maximize freedom but that freedom ends where one individual's action affects harm on another individual. And people have talked about the limitations of that, and that's fine. It's just that most other ways that you would set up those moral frameworks also have their limitations. So then you can compare the limitations. Well, I guess what I'm trying to get at, like, I think there's a lot of people that would look at what John DeLynn's doing and they, they think he's actually evil. Right. And I'm, I'm looking at him and I was like, and, and Bill real. And I look at him and I believe them when they say, I think this is important and I'm going to do this thing because I think it's going to help people. Oh um, yeah. So, oh, so, yeah. so the problem that I'm having and like, am I giving too much grace? Like, should I hold people accountable? <laughs> like even Tim Ballard with this, all this Tim Ballard stuff, he probably justified whatever he was doing. If he's a, if he's actually guilty of the accusations, the all the accusations that are being lobbed at him right now, my guess is that in some way he probably justified it in his head, and in his head he was still the hero in his story. It's not like he was even Joseph Smith. Like all, it's not. It's not to say that there isn't actually bad. Like I think those things are bad. I, I'm having a hard time. It's really hard for me to get my head around somebody that actually thinks they're doing something terrible and they know it, <laughs> you know, and I don't know, but yeah. maybe. Well, I mean, in, in those cases, it seems like there's there's obvious motivations for people, sex, power, money, influence. And when somebody's use of deception or some of the cult manipulative things in terms of putting some lofty ideal out there and then using that as a justification for behaviors that somebody would not otherwise choose to do. Like all of those things are part of whatever is coming out in Tim Ballard. And so those are methods of manipulation and motives for manipulation that I think you can't ignore in that. Um, you did bring up a, an important part in terms of our, our John DeLynn and Bill Real doing, and I think there's, they're doing what they believe to be good, but they're also doing what they believe to be in their best interest. And they've made a career out of what they're doing. And so whether or not a video gets clicks, whether or not the audience reaction is big or not, become a factor in what they choose to cover, how they choose to cover it. And I believe there is a influence in that that is is a problem and is a potential for them to go off the deep end in certain directions. And you know, right now when you have to virtue signal certain things, you have to platform certain things, I think that they are subject certainly to those types of influences. And I, it's kind of like when you see a journalist that you've respected in the past start to become very ideologically oriented and to embrace their biases rather than try to overcome it, I, I feel like this is a pathway that they run the risk of going down. 
and I hate to see that be an unchecked sort of thing. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I just think there's a there's a problem as soon as you monetize this because we're talking about things that tend to have a moral dimension to it, then both of them have to be the right good type of person and whatever determines what good is tends to be this critical social justice thing. And so that that's just going to be a distorting factor because they have to be willing to go against the grain, willing to say things that might offend their audience. And, um, you know, when you hear the pleas for money, oh, we lost subscribers. We've had a lot of subscribers lost in the pleas for money in that regard. It, um, I think that's just a reminder that there is a dimension of what they do that may introduce a bias that mm -hmm. they themselves not may not be aware of. There's this great Key and Peel video where they're doing a stage play of Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, and there's an audience there, and they take turns saying lines, and some of the audience doesn't respond good to one person. And so another person says something different and the audience responds positively to it. So he says something even more in that direction and the audience responds positively to it. And it's just a brilliant depiction of audience capture and how it can actually shape the way that a public figure talks and what they talk about and how they talk about it. And that's something that um, I don't know if those guys look out for. I've, I've sent them the link to these things and I've said, hey, this is something we need to make sure that we're all paying attention to. But I don't monetize. I'm not basing my income, my livelihood. I didn't retire from a job so that I could do this full time like I know Radio Free Mormon and Bill Real have done. And so that just places a different kind of emphasis on what they cover and how they cover. They do a lot of good work. And, you know, I totally enjoy all the time, all the chatting I spend with them. And um, and so I just I hope that they remind themselves regularly, you know, to keep an even keel in that regard. Yeah. I've, I've been interviewing different podcasters and a lot of times I will ask them about like, do you worry about audience capture? And I asked them that question and, and it's interesting to hear. I think I even asked Bill Real that question and just how he's been driven by money. I think he responded, if I remember right, that he has a lot of projects that like nobody listens to that he feels very, that he feels that would, would be helpful to people. And so, um, um, yeah, but he then, I don't know, like, I can't remember for sure. I'd have to go back and listen. Anyways. Yeah. I, I wonder about the same thing and that's why I'm, I'm okay that I have no listeners. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing is like, all of us are just kind of, Ooh, there is going to be a point where we realize, I think that we do need to step offline and touch grass and engage with people personally and and do that. And, and I've been trying to allow myself to be influenced more by the people in my life that are reminding me about that. Yeah. And so for that's sure. been an important thing. Yeah. Same, same. <laughs> so, all right. Well, thanks again for coming on okay. and I will, I'll let you go. All right. Take care. It's been great. Yep. Thanks. Bye now.